The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Good morning. So, um, he asked me to introduce myself. Uh, nothing special to say, really. I'm just like you, wanting to be happy and healthy. Um, Mark is away, so I'm I'm a sub for Mark. This is a kind of my Labor Labor Day weekend is a traditional time. I sub for Mark, so he's away leading Common Ground Retreat with forty or fifty of our friends. So they're all sitting at Holy Spirit, just like we've been sitting. I've been coming to Common Ground since 1999, and in addition to um, subbing for Mark from time to time, I teach a a class twice a year. It's a five-week-long class, twice a year called Befriending Death, meeting in permanence with courage, love, and equanimity. It'll be starting soon, in a couple of weeks. Befriending death, meeting impermanence with courage, love, and equanimity. And you can find the information on Common Ground website if you go to calendar. So, um, I'd like you to invite you to imagine for a moment what it took us to arrive here this morning. It took our mind and heart to plan and to have desire to be here. And it took the road that we took to walk on or bike or drive. You know we take the road for granted. Do you know that the road in front of Common Ground probably connects to all the other roads as far as the continents go to the four directions. I can imagine it because once we drove from in front of our house all the way to the southern tip of Yucatan in Mexico. And I often imagine this little road connects all the way. It took people, machines, materials to build the roads. It took uh, legs, a vehicle, or some people who come here on wheelchair, or some people who need a cane. It took all of that to arrive here. And you know the very floor you are sitting on? It takes the floor for us to be sitting here. We can't be here if it wasn't for the floor. Imagine that. It took the sun, the rain, and earth for the trees to grow. The trees that the floor is made of. We are here because our body is here. And what does it take to make it possible for our body to be here? our mother and father, 
to begin with. And our ancestors preceding them. And hundreds and thousands of hours of care. It takes the plants, water, minerals, creatures of earth and sea and sky to sustain this body every day. And every single plant and every single creature depend on the sun, the rain, earth, and each other. If we look deeply, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, on this ordinary Sunday morning, our ordinary presence here reveals an astonishing truth of what it takes to be alive in this body now. So that's the topic of the talk this morning, the body. You know, besides English being my, not being my first language, I have crooked teeth, teeth here. <laughs> and so air escapes from this, these teeth. So words that have Fs and THs are hard for me to say. I repeat it to um, a friend, a very attentive friend, Fathom, three times. And three times she said, what? So, so I'm going to spell it for you because it's an important word, fathom. <laughs> F-A-T-H-O-M, fathom. The Buddha once declared, quote, in this fathom-long body with its thoughts, and perceptions that there is the world, there is the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. In this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and perceptions that there is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. How do we fathom this declaration? The original meaning of the word fathom comes from a unit of measurement based on the span of outstretched arms. So if you're small, with short arms, or if you're tall with long arms, the span of your arms approximate, approximates the length of your body. So only later it was standardized to mean six feet. It's kind of too bad. It's now mostly used in reference to the measurement of the depth of water. I love that the word fathom gives a sense of the size of a body, as tall or as short, and it's 
and what it is we are mostly made of. My body is this big, and 90% of the weight of this body is water. In its depth, it holds unfathomable mystery. In this fathom long body, with, with its perceptions and thoughts, there is the world. In some translations, instead of the world, it's translated as the cosmos. So we could say, in this fathom long body is the cosmos, the entire universe. The science shows that we are indeed made of the stardust in a cosmic explosion billions of years ago. In this body, just this big, the Big Bang is traced from the beginning of the universe to this very moment, right here, right now. Astrophysicist Carol, an Irish driver, said, we really didn't realize how impermanent we are, or maybe they became Buddhist, and that our bodies are made of remnants of stars and massive explosions in the galaxies. All the materials in our bodies originates with that residual stardust, and it finds its way into plants, and from there into the nutrients that we need for everything we do, think, move, grow, and every few years, the bulk of our bodies are newly created. And they continue to say, we have stuff in us as old as the universe, and then some stuff that landed here maybe only a hundred years ago. And all of that mixes in our bodies. In this fathom long body, we have cellular memories of our physical evolution, a single cell dividing and multiplying in the warm sea, becoming fish-like. Cells differentiate into ever more complex and specialized functions, evolving into heart, skin, all the other organs, eyes, limbs, Brain. Our human ancestors are in our body. Down to our mother and father. In this fathom long body, all the causes and conditions of the past and present. All the causes and conditions of the past are present. And now, Evolution is waiting as possibilities. In this fathom long body, we know the world through the senses. Sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. In the Buddhist cosmos, thinking or mental activity is considered to be the sixth sense. But in the modern Western world, the mental activity is considered superior to all the other senses. 
It's an aspect of the Western dualistic philosophy. It has become the predominant view in the West, and whether we like it or not, all of us have been deeply shaped by that. I think it's so deeply ingrained in us, we don't even notice it or think about it. So, dualism is a view of the world as comprised of separate things, often in opposition. For example, the mind and the body, or the mind versus the body. So, what once was a unified whole was broken down into separate parts to be analyzed, hierarchized, and manipulated through process of mental reasoning. The body as the source of vital information and the guide for living was minimized at best and often dismissed. The civic institutions like, well, including healthcare, education, government, are still deeply entrenched in this dualism. And sometimes I think a whole bunch of problems arise from there. So it's no wonder that most of us begin our meditation practice believing that thinking determines who we are. But it's only one of six ways of knowing the physical world. So most of us grow up relating to the body as something to think about, if at all, if we think about it at all. We are either not aware of what happens in, a, in us below our neck, or we think about what happens rather than directly experiencing it. So when we learn to meditate on the breath, it's really a leap forward when we can experience the vibrant sensation of the breath inside the body. Through the direct, non-conceptual experience, experiencing of the breath, we observe how the breath is breathing itself in the seamless body. Everything we need to realize about the world is found within our body. The path to freedom is not through thinking, but through experiencing in the body the pain of our mistaken identity based on the core belief that we are not good enough. Who we truly are is not who we believe to be. I can tell you my own example. In the middle of writing this talk, I kind of got stuck. I was more than half... So there's a little snicker, you know, you heard me say this because it happens a lot. <laughs> I was more than halfway through, but then there was the resistance to continue. I first noticed that when the mind started looking for distraction instead of getting back to the computer. The thinking mind tempted like this. Ah, I need some coffee now. 
oh, there's some errands I have to do. Uh, I need to pay those bills. I have munchies. I should eat something. (laughs) But I knew I wasn't really thirsty or hungry. The errands and bills could wait. What was going on? So, with curiosity and care, I went to sit on my cushion to investigate. So, as I sat, trying to directly experience the sensations in the body, I noticed that my throat was constricted, like a small pebble was stuck in there. And the mind went, oh no, a sign of anxiety! (laughs) (laughs) it's okay calm down just feel whatever is arising whatever is going on in the throat the lump in the throat was blocking the flow from my mind to the heart and to the belly awareness shed light on this without trying to change anything the sensation shifted on its own turning the stone into something softer and permeable. Like a fist loosening into an open palm, it revealed the awareness that it was about being scared, so it needed to hold back tightly. What are you afraid? my curiosity asked. And the little voice whimpered, I'm afraid I can't do it. So the awareness leaned in and held it without judgment, bringing full presence and benevolent curiosity. So access to below the throat was open now, holding the whimpering one tenderly in my awareness My attention went down to the cave of the heart. It was dark and heavy. It told of burdens of having to do things without knowing how. As a little girl, I felt responsible to make my grieving mother happy. But I didn't know how. I couldn't do it. So focused on making my mom smile, that I didn't know how to feel or care for my own sadness. And finally then, I could see clearly that these feelings did not relate to the Dharma talk at all. They were triggered, nevertheless, when I came to a particularly challenging part of writing. In my body, I touched an old fear and grief the whimpering one and the one who felt burdened by the impossible task. I honor them for what they were without needing to ask anything of them. I received their pain and held it with tenderness. And in this holding, they healed. To heal means to become whole they actually share the same root, the word 
something that was divided and separate was remembered back into a unity. What gave me courage to turn inward towards my fear and grief was a kind of tender love for my vulnerability and and fierce love for truth. I think it would be difficult to engage in this kind of deep inquiry without compassion for our pain. When awareness sees the pain without the obstruction of judgment, compassion naturally rises in response. Suzuki Roshi, the well-known Zen master, wrote, A deep freedom must touch core wounds, the place where we feel quite unlovable. We are by nature supremely vulnerable, impressionable. Real transcendence appreciate how things are always falling apart against a background of perfect harmony. The body is the source of vitality and aliveness. When we lean in to directly experience the body from the inside, we begin to see that awareness is already present in this fathom-long body. We realize that the body is awareness. It is not a thing, but a process. In the direct experiencing of all that happens in the body, we shift then to the non-dualistic way of being in the world. In this body of needs and wants is also awareness that can know the pain. The awareness can know the pain, but is not affected by the pain. And it and brings us closer to love that knows no boundary. So I quote again, in this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and thoughts, that there is the world, the origin of the world, and the path and the cessation of the world and the path leading to the cessation of the world. What was it that the Buddha was pointing to here? Does this remind us of something familiar? Okay. No raised hand here? Okay. Well, the structure is the same as the full noble truth, right? Truth, the full noble truth, in which the Buddha declared, there is the truth of suffering, the truth of the origin of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the path leading to the cessation of suffering. The Buddha was not into philosophical theories. The Buddhism is not about dogma. Instead, his teachings point, pointed to experiences and practices. In saying that there is the world, I believe he was showing that it is true. The world does exist as a form, as an appearance, and that... There is a cause 
for the world to appear. There's a reason that we have the form, the appearances. I believe that the Buddha was talking about how the world is a virtual construction created through the senses, including and especially the sixth sense, mental activities. It's a construction woven of moment-to-moment awareness, rising and falling, in ever-changing flow. Does the world appear without our awareness? In a way, awareness is like the air. It's always there. And we forget until we bring attention to it. We know that the eyes see things, but until awareness enters the relationship, what the eyes sees is not known. A perception of a thing takes place in a triad of the sense organ, like the eyes, for example, the sense object, I probably am the sense object of a lot of you right now. So sense object is what the eyes see, and the awareness, the knowing of the experience. The Buddha says, in this fathom-long body with its perceptions and thoughts is the world. He acknowledged the body, the world. He acknowledged that it comes to exist, but there are appearances, formless taking form. Anything that takes form must perish, he repeated numerous times. Again, not as a theory, but as something for us to observe and experience. The evidence of impermanence is everywhere in the body and in the world. Is the world then like an effervescent rainbow-colored giant bubble floating in space, only to be seized any moment? No, don't worry. (laughs) You or the world will not disappear. When he talks about the cessation of the world, the Buddha points to something larger, ever-present, permeating all existence, yet, yet unknowable through the senses. When Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, a very well-known Tibetan teacher, when he was teaching in the early 1970s, he once drew something uh, that looked like a, a stick figure on a blackboard. Stick figure of a bird on a blackboard. And then he asked his student, what is this picture of? And no one wanted to say the obvious until finally a student raised his hand and said, it's a picture of a bird. And Trumpa Rinpoche said, no. Anybody has a guess? No, he said, it's a picture of the sky. In this simple example, 
the teachers show the students how we get lost in concepts as object and ignore the ground from which phenomena appears and disappears. The bird and the sky create each other, he said. One does not exist without the other. So our body is like that drawing of the bird. It appears as a form in the phenomenal world, impermanent, ever-changing, yet held in the vast sky. Just as he pointed to the path leading to the cessation of suffering, the Buddha pointed to the path leading to the cessation of the world. And that path has to do with awareness. Awareness is the vast sky where phenomena arises and disappears. Awareness is the open space in which things happen without itself ever changing. Rodney Smith, the guiding teacher of Seattle Insight Meditation Center, an author of books on non-dual, wrote, Nothing is sacred without it being empty. Emptiness is the sacred. So like space, we can't touch it or know it through the intellect. But glimpses of it are enough to give us a sense that who we truly are cannot be contained or mirrored by our thought. A little bit more of science here. All physical things are made of atoms which are 99.9999999% empty space. How can it be? We seem so solid. (laughs) If it's mostly empty space, why don't things just pass through them? The physicist explained that it is the constant movement of the electrons that gives the appearance of solidity. Science supports the Buddha's claim that what appears to be is not really what it is. So, when we sit, I invite you to experiment with shifting your awareness to the space inside of you and around you. When you see a leaf on the tree, go back and forth, shifting the focus from the leaf to the space around around the leaf. If you are seeing me, see me and see the space around me and around each other. When you see your child or beloved friend, see that person and shift your awareness to include the space that permeates within you and your friend and around you. When you listen, hear the words, hear the sounds, and hear the space where the sounds happen. So 
I, I want to invite you just for a couple minutes for you to try it. And pay attention to what you notice. If this feels kind of different. So, now, some final thoughts on this, or about this fathom long body. My thoughts are that it's, a, its separateness and independence are in appearance only because of the discriminating tendencies of the thinking mind. Actually, every person's body is porous and, and is in dynamic exchange within and without. It's not even we are connected like strings of pearls. In this body is the universe, and we are each other. We breathe in each other's breath. Our body is nourished on the stardust through the plants. The trees breathe in what we exhale. When we come home to our body, we see that everything is connected to everything else. I'm so grateful that Thich Nhat Hanh created or invented the word interbe. He wrote, when we look deeply into the flower, we see a cloud, rain, sunshine, earth. Looking into the flower, we see the elements that we don't call flower, but which are part of the flower. Without non-flower elements, a flower cannot manifest herself as a wonderful phenomena. It is made exclusively of non-flower elements. So the flower has no separate existence. A flower can only interbe, he said. And we are no different. We can only interbe ourselves. When we are so deeply and dynamically connected to everyone else and everything else, can we really ignore the problems of our environment, of injustice around us, our own suffering as felt in our body? When unarmed black people are shot, we are all endangered. When some people don't feel welcome here at Common Ground, we each lose something. When we don't attend to our pain with compassion, the whole universe 
suffers a little bit. When there's so much suffering in the world, is it okay to feel joy and peace then? It's not only acceptable, it's a necessity to cultivate joy and peace in the midst of chaos and pain. It's not about defending our heart. We need to let our heart break and learn to trust that each time the heart breaks, it just keeps on getting bigger. Imagine trying to help others when you are drowned in the misery of the world. It matters to the world that you are happy. We are happy. That you can know the joy of being alive in this precious, fathom-long body. If the luminous awareness is like the, <clears throat> like the sky, the empty space, what holds the emptiness together is love in the interconnected web of all that takes form. Formless emptiness takes on a face and it becomes the face of the beloved. This is where the wisdom and compassion meet in the dead center of our lived life. The great Indian sage Nisargadatta said, sage said, Nisargadatta said, love knows we are everything. Wisdom knows we are nothing. And my life flows between the two. Our existence is made up of things at once indispensable and empty. This is a great paradox each of us must live into. Each of us has taken this precious human life. Each of us is indispensable and has something to give to each other, to life. There are things only you can do at this particular juncture of time and space. What are you waiting for? There's a man, Benoit LeConte, who plans to swim across the Pacific Ocean. Crazy, right? He had actually swum across the Atlantic in 1998. And now he wants to swim across 5,500 miles from Tokyo to San Francisco as a way to raise awareness about sustainability and the impact of excessive human garbage polluting the world's ocean. And in a recent interview on NPR, he was asked why and how he's going to do that. And this is what he said. If I'm an artist or a sculptor, that's what I'd be doing to make a statement. But I draw terribly and I don't know how to sculpt. I know how to do long-distance swim. So that's why I want to swim across the Pacific how do I do it? I never jump into the water thinking about the entire ocean. I just cut it into small pieces. When I'm in the middle of the ocean, I think about being in a pool and the pool moves with me. That's how he plans on doing it. So it matters that we reflect on the question of what it is we can do Not just do it, but do it with love. And it doesn't have to be big things. 
Emily Dickinson wrote, If I can stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. If I can ease one life the aching, or cool one pain, or help one fainting robin unto his, knee, unto his nest again, I shall not live in vain. So it's not about making impossible dreams. It's about recognizing a particular way your goodness manifests in your life. What is it that we seem to do with ease and joy? It could be as simple as cooking with love. And then you have you made plenty and you bring it to your sick friend. A barber in Alabama decided to give free haircuts to African-American boys in the neighborhood in exchange for reading to him. This way, the barber supports the boys to gain reading skills while the new haircut makes the boys gleam. You might have seen or used one of the beautifully hand-knit shawls in the closet over there. One of the common ground members, members donate them. Her meditation is reciting loving-kindness as she knits them. When you put it on you, on you, you can feel the love. It makes difference. It's affirming something we already do with ease and joy in this fathom long body. Not about becoming somebody or something else. In what unique way your natural goodness is manifesting as an offering to the world, to life. When we look deeply into the body we are born into and appreciate the unfathomable causes and conditions that shape this body, we have profound respect for its intelligence to survive and to continue life. We are here compelled by love of life. And at the same time, when we see clearly how our capacity for awareness make it possible to make wise choices, we realize then that in this Fatum Long body is a possibility for healing of the past and freedom in the present. Here, our love of truth gives us courage to fly out of the cage into the infinite sky where our true nature really belongs. So now let's go of all the words and drop into the body for a moment, shifting awareness to the throat, to the chest area, to the belly, Feel your whole body sitting here. And what is it that's arising in your body now?
So I'm sorry that we don't have a whole lot of time. Just a couple minutes for comment or question. Same here. Yes? Thank you, Kyoko. I enjoyed your enjoyed your talk. Since nobody had any real questions, I just wanted to share with you a, a couple uh, images that came through your meditation. I mean, they were images that you pulled up, but you had instructed us to breathe in, realizing the breath coming from other members in the Sangha here. And then you said, breathe out and observe or, or to be aware of your neighbor's taking in that breath. Be aware of somebody you hate taking in that breath. And I just immediately just thought of somebody in ISIS taking in my breath, and it just struck me sharp pains in my heart. I said, oh, no. Made me realize I have a lot yet to learn and to let go of. A little bit later then, as you were speaking, uh, I don't remember exactly what it is you had said in the meditation, but I was, you were talking of healing and stuff, and I got the image then of me taking in the breath of somebody in ISIS or somebody who was in pain and hurting, and me bringing that breath in and acting as a cleansing machine and issuing back out then my breath of love and compassion mm-hmm. to those people. And so I saw it as a, as a healing breath. And it was just it was wonderful images. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for a beautiful image. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about physical pain. Um, for those of us who live with chronic pain, I know that sometimes when it's bad, I have a tendency to distract myself. And so when you talk about the duality, I think, well, I know that one really well. And sometimes I'm actually trying to do it. So could you comment on physical pain? Sometimes you try to... I do try to actually escape my body and be in my mind. Just uh-huh. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You're talking integration, and yeah. sometimes distraction is a strategy. And if that works, why not? And, and sometimes when the pain is so severe, you know, and your energy is so limited because pain is draining, then distraction works. Why not? And sometime when you, when you feel some space, see if you can experience the pain directly for what it is. And, and for example, I, I was sitting with the cramps in both of my legs today. And, and, and so my, I just can like, oh, no, it's just, yeah, I won't be able to, you know, all that thought that happens, and I just kind of like, okay. And I was trying to directly experience that pain. And 
And the pain shifted on its own. It kind of moved around. And I don't know if the intensity of the pain itself has changed, but without my reactivity, the pain was just there. And somehow I was able to bear it and continue the talk. Um, because because uh, time is up. Um, you know, we... We have a community conversation uh, once a quarter for people who are experiencing serious illness, including chronic pain. So, you know, it might be helpful for you to come to that meeting and share experience and practices with others with similar experience. Yeah. I'm so sorry that our time is up. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.